Just a quick heads up. From the outset, this episode includes reenactments of historical court transcripts using language of its time. In the year of our Lord, 1857, and in this, the 81st year of our independence, the court is now in session and will hear evidence in the case of Jacob F. Perkins versus John R. White, both of Johnson County, Tennessee. Defendant stands accused of gross slander of plaintiff having publicly accused plaintiff Jacob Perkins of being of the Negro strain. Counsel for the plaintiff may begin to offer their sworn depositions. Mr. Thomas Nelson, please proceed. Thanking you kindly, Your Honor. If it may please the court, Deposition 1, Hyla Vance, age 57. <coughs> <coughs> I knew old Jacob, plaintiff's grandfather. He had their visage, a high Roman nose, and was darker than Joshua. Hair curly, not kinky. I was there and saw the corpse of Jacob. His wife said they was Portuguese. None of them had hair as curly as Colonel Smith's. They were said to be Portuguese. I knew Portuguese darker than Joshua. End of Deposition 1 Deposition 2 Thomas Cook Age 75 I knew old Joshua Perkins. He was a dark-skinned man, darker than young Joshua, tall and spare. He resembled an Indian more than a Negro, was generally called a Portuguese. End of Deposition 2 and the third deposition, Mary Wilson. I was well acquainted with Jock Perkins, father of Joshua, a yellow man, said to be Portuguese. They did not look like Negroes. I have been about his house a great deal and nursed for his wife. She was a little yellow and called of the same race, had blue eyes and black hair, was visited by white folks. Old Mr. Graves, a dark-skinned white man, hair not curly, Mrs. Graves, a dark white woman, they were called Portuguese. Jacob Perkins, a little darker than Joshua. End of Deposition 3 And my final deposition to the court, John J. Wilson, aged about 70. I knew the great-grandfather of plaintiff, old Jock, a dark-skinned and complected man, rather bald, hair bushy and long, not kinky, associated with white people. His wife said to be a Scotch woman. He had a long Roman nose, associated with most respectable persons. Some of Jock's neighbors called him a Negro, they called themselves Portuguese. Some would call them Negroes and some Portuguese. 
Old Jock's wife, she never bought him, never heard of their drinking wives' blood, always considered Jock's wife's father, John Graves, also to be Portuguese. His color never called in question, but for the time he ran for constable. I knew Lewis Perkins was darker than any of them, but he didn't have kinky hair or have a Negro smell. He was a dark-skinned man with red complexion. End of Deposition 4 Thanking the court and your honor. The court thanks you, Mr. Nelson. Counsel for the defendant may now offer their depositions. Uh, yes, thank you, Judge. First deposition, Lilburn C. Barry. 12 or 18 months ago at Sawmill, J.J. Wilson said he was a Negro. Some years ago, her dogger say he would not vote where a damned Negro sat as judge. Joshua Perkins' son took it up. End of Deposition 1. Deposition 2. Celia Goodwin. Perkins called Negroes. Immensely well acquainted with Jake. Nancy said the mixture on her side was Portuguese and on her husband's was Negroes. Immensely well acquainted with the brothers. William Perkins, brother of plaintiff, married my granddaughter. Can't speak as to the hair. Lydia's hair, amazing black. Amazing black. End of second deposition. Deposition three. Dicey Whaley. Jacob Perkins, old and dark-skinned. Mother would not let me go there as they were colored. Knew three brothers. When people was mad, called them Negroes. When people was not mad, they just called them dark-skinned. I knew the smell of them by being with their wives in having children. Lay with Evelina and smelled her. End of third deposition. Deposition four. Mary White. Knew Jacob Perkins, father of Joshua, Colored and very dark. Always called Negro or Indian. Old Richard White said he saw Jacob Perkins' father on PD and he was a Negro. The smell. We slept in the same house with them. The Perkins always treated at our house as white people. John R. White, my son. End of deposition. Deposition five. Jane Griffey. First knew them a year ago. Washed William Perkins' clothes and they smelt like Jack Hampton's Negro. William, the brother of plaintiff. Clothes all washed together and I know the smell. End of deposition. Last deposition. Dr. John E. Cawson. Knew the father and mother of plaintiff. His father, a very black man and a genuine Negro. Joshua's mother said her connection opposed to her marriage and that she was not clear blood, her skin swarthy. Perkins reputed as Negroes. K. 
Can't say whether Jake Perkins was full-blooded. The nose, African. I have seen Portuguese. They have long straight hair and keen black eyes. I practiced in all their families and never smelt anything. Jacob, John, and Lydia as dark as the darkest black man. Believe they were Africans. The Perkins family always claimed to be Portuguese. Joshua's mother, very little mixed. His sisters as bright as the brightest mulattoes. Jacob, brother of Joshua, taught school. All married white women. Wives, third rate. End of final deposition. Hello there, I'm Brian Halpin, and welcome to the time before we were white. Blended Isolation In almost every U.S. state east of a line drawn from the Great Lakes to Texas, a traveler or investigator will find what many sociologists and anthropologists have traditionally liked to call racial isolate communities. New York has its pond shiners and Aramapo mountain people. New Jersey has its pineys and gold towners. West Virginia has so-called guineas. Ohio has Carmel Indians. Delaware and Maryland have their moors and wee sorts. Louisiana has its red bones, while Virginia and the Carolinas are absolutely jumping with so-called mixed racial isolate communities. Potomacs, Issues, Cubans, Portuguese, Haliwa, Lumbi, Turks, Brass Ankles, the list goes on and on. So many isolate groups in one region rather begs the question, just how isolated can these communities actually be? Well, we'll just set that aside for the moment. When outsiders use these terms, they bring certain assumptions about America's ethnic history to the table. The greatest oversimplified assumption of all is this. That America, as a project, involved white European settlers spreading into indigenous lands bringing enslaved Africans and African-Americans with them. A simple story, right? A white, red, and black story. And yet it's not even half of the story. 
these assumptions map neatly onto the absurdly stubborn American insistence on viewing humanity through a racial lens, with everyone placed neatly into a race category based on skin pigmentation and other carefully selected physical characteristics. This means that when a student of anthropology or social history comes across an entire community sharing a broadly similar physical appearance which can't be shoehorned into one of America's standardized racial categories, a simple and very American solution to the problem is always rolled out. Just call such people biracial or triracial. America's historical racial caste system has always absolutely depended upon defining brown people simply as a subcategory of white and black people. Why? Because if brown had been allowed to join the official list of race categories, the entire house of cards would have collapsed. The very first day that Europeans set foot in the Americas, non-enslaved brown people were part of the story. These people were not tri-racial isolates. They were actual ethnic groups. Ethnic groups with brown skin. Going right back to very first contact in the New World, Christopher Columbus had Jewish and Romani people with him on his very first trip to the Caribbean. Spanish explorers and conquistadors included Moors and other North Africans in their expedition parties. By the time of the founding of the Jamestown colony in 1607, the Portuguese were already long intermingled with peoples from every corner of their trading empire. Arabs, Malagasy, South Asians, and other various peoples from the East Indies. Anglo-America was not somehow weirdly isolated from the Spanish, French, Portuguese, Swedish, or Dutch empires, and those who listened to our third podcast episode about Jamestown will already know of the presence there of people from as far afield as Armenia. From the time of the founding of Jamestown until the end of the Indian Wars in North America, Native Americans were liable to enslavement, just like people of African ancestry. Laws against Indian enslavement had very little effect on the ground, with the law only being heeded in places where it could be actually enforced. A widespread intermixing of Euro-Americans, Indigenous Americans, and African Americans had created problems for race-based slavery as early as the 1600s. A blossoming of pseudo-legal terms to describe the children of this situation are testament to slaveholders' anxiety about their clear color lines being crossed with alarming regularity. Musty, mulatto, Quadroon, Octoroon, Half-Breed, Yellow Mulatto. Because any of the aforementioned unfree peoples might easily be confused with members of a dark-skinned free ethnic group, you can see the problem with admitting the existence of brown races in America at all. 
and things would only get messier. With the outlawing of the transatlantic slave trade in 1807, most American slaveholders simply turned to breeding their own slaves. One horrific side effect of this ghastly turn of events was the widespread sexual abuse of enslaved women by slaveholders. But when offspring resulted from this abuse, it was no immediate problem for the slaveholder. He had simply increased his property wealth, as U.S. laws dictated that children were born into the condition of their mother, not their father. The only downside for such slaveholders was the possibility that their children, (coughs) their mulatto slaves, could run away and head for distant jurisdictions where they might pass as free persons of color by claiming to be anything other than African. Asian Indian, Cherokee, Moorish, Black Dutch, Portuguese, you name it. The solution for slaveholders was to simply pretend that brown-skinned people didn't exist as ethnic groups in their own right. This outright denial of brown ethnic groups eventually had to be modified somewhat as Latinos and Jews were grudgingly allowed to become honorary white folks. Less empowered or impoverished brown people, however, were always assumed to be a mixture of black and white, with the possibility of some American Indian admixture and even one drop of so-called Negro blood was like a drop of black ink in a bucket of white paint. To be even a small part black was to be black under the law. So if you were, say, three-quarters Choctaw and one-quarter African, you were black. How about a quarter Irish, a quarter German, quarter Cherokee, quarter African? You were black. Half English, half African? You were black or mulatto. Half Jewish, half Shawnee. Mulatto. Uh, three-quarters Romani, Gypsy, and one-quarter Pamunkey Indian. Mulatto. Half German, half Creek. Mulatto, maybe half-breed, depending on who you talk to. So, what happened when all these people asserted their own identity? one which ran counter to the limited official American race designations. The American public, after 400 years of race indoctrination, just won't allow it. Unless you're white. A white person with just 1 16th Irish ancestry can call themselves Irish. But when brown people assert their own identity. Even scholarly investigators, who should know better, simply nod politely at community folk history, 
before going back to their universities to write up academic papers assuring the world that these people could not possibly be who they say they are. Turks? Don't be ridiculous. Moors? Yeah, right. Portuguese? Ha! Clearly a cover story handed down to avoid being seen as black. Certain sections of American society are having an awful time coming to terms with identity politics to this very day. It's understandable. To name a thing, anything, is an act of power. It's why Abrahamic religions make it the very first act of the newly created first ever man. In naming the animals and trees and the world, Adam was made powerful. To name a thing brings it fully into being. To name an entire group of people, well, that's a whole new level of power altogether. And for 400 years of American history, just one group had a monopoly on such naming rights. You might even say that this one group owned and controlled identity politics. Lately, that group is losing control of the thing they invented, and they do not like it. Not one bit. This court is now in session. Mr. Abraham Lincoln, counsel for the plaintiff. You may approach the bar. Thank you, judge. My client is not a Negro. Though it is no crime to be a Negro, no crime to be born with a black skin. But my client is not a Negro. His skin may not be as white as ours, but I say he is not a Negro, though he may be a Moor. Mr. Lincoln, you mean a Moor, not Moor, like Mr. Moor. <laughs> well, Your Honor, Moor, not C.H. Moore sitting there. But I say again, I say my client may be a moor, but he is not a negro. Part three. The Melungeons will get you. Much of my interest in the hidden, multi-ethnic past of America stems from a strange discovery made many years ago. While doing research on our first official family tree following the birth of our first child, I began to notice an unfamiliar word being applied to ancestors on my side of this tree. 
Melungeon. This came as a major surprise, not least because I had never even heard of the word. While I was already fairly certain that our family was not wholly European, based mainly upon the very dark complexion and unusual features of my maternal grandfather, we had always been told that his appearance was due to his Cherokee ancestry. A great deal of my earliest genealogical investigations were centered on a fruitless search for these Cherokee ancestors. So when numerous online sources used the word Melungeon to describe some of my dark-hued family, I was all ears. By the early to mid-1800s, the word Melungeon was already being used in parts of southern Appalachia as a socio-racial slur aimed at non-enslaved mountain people who were not quite white, not quite black, and lived somewhat on the periphery of respectable society. These people called Melungeons tended to be found in the more remote hills and hollers of Virginia, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, and East Tennessee. By the late 1800s, these people were considered enough of an ethnic curiosity that outsiders began to speculate on their origins, even conducting informal field visits and penning pseudo-anthropological articles purporting to explain Melungeon history. These were the travel writers, social historians, and quasi-academics preceding the later serious field studies. I use the term serious field studies in quotation marks, by the way. There is always a dollar to be had where there is a mystery. Just visit Roswell, New Mexico, or Loch Ness in Scotland. A veritable industry grew from people's efforts to supply the final word on the question, who are the mysterious Melungeons? And for the past 150 years, before they became tri-racial isolates, these mountain people have been variously described as many things. Outsiders tended to suggest an ethnic background mainly among the Cherokee, African Americans, and Portuguese. Some ventured as far as to suggest Gypsy, Turkish, and even Moorish ancestry via ancient Phoenician ancestry. When asked directly about their families, the people themselves tended to mention Black Dutch, Spanish, or Portuguese especially Portuguese. During the latter half of the 20th century, anthropologists and field ethnologists tended to congregate around the view that Melungeons were simply tri-racial isolates, whatever anyone else said. With academia's new consensus that Melungeons merely represented an early intermingling of African Americans, Indigenous Americans, and white Northern Europeans, the case was declared closed. In an effort to have the very final word on the matter in 2012, one highly selective Y-DNA project commissioned by a small group of genealogists, even received national and international attention when their so-called 
definitive study, announced its claimed final proof of Melungeon origins to a credulous press. Quote, There were a whole lot of people upset by this study. Unquote. Thus spoke Roberta Eastes in 2012, showing a masterly understanding of the age of the soundbite while answering a journalist's questions about a study she and her colleagues had published in the Journal of Genetic Genealogy. And why exactly were so many people said to be upset? Because this study published by the Journal of Genetic Genealogy essentially told generations of mountain people that, contrary to whatever they might say or believe, they are all in fact descended from a few sub-Saharan African men who had taken northern European female partners during the colonial and early post-colonial era. The subtly mocking tone of the soundbite above almost betrays a hint of glee, as if to say, Loads of these hillbillies are part black and they're either too dumb to know it or too racist to acknowledge it. We're here to set the record straight. Or, as Eastus went on to actually say, they just knew they were Portuguese or Native American. It is important to note here that the journal in question is what it says on the label. A Journal of Genetic Genealogy. Genealogy involves sifting through various records in order to establish familial connections and remote ancestry. Genetic genealogy involves using DNA samples to substantiate the familial connections suggested by a paper trail. Genetic genealogy is also an extremely useful tool for anyone seeking to find their biological relatives when the paper trail is inadequate. People like adoptees or children born from third-party reproduction methods. Put another way, your family's paper trail might suggest your grandfather was John Smith. The DNA might say otherwise. Family lore and birth certificates don't tend to mention when Grandma became pregnant by Fred down the road. Genetic genealogy sits at a strange intersection, wedged somewhere between the discipline of basic history and the empirical world of biological science. While genetic genealogy is able to use DNA results to speak with some authority about our recent familial relationships, it offers very little of substance to those interested in the deep ancestral and cultural roots of communities. Yet this is precisely what the Journal of Genetic Genealogy report attempted to imply it had achieved. But this self-decreed final word given by genetic genealogists was based on a very narrow and blinkered interpretation of extremely cherry-picked and incomplete data. Describing the ancestral legacy of an entire community almost entirely in terms of Y-DNA, bereft of historical, cultural, ethnological, and perhaps most of all, 
female context would be like visiting a primeval forest teeming with life, picking up a stick and glibly describing the landscape as pretty much cellulose. This final point is so important. We'll need to take a short section to explain why. Part 4 The Big DNA Detour So, what exactly is why DNA? We're not going to go anywhere near a science lecture here, so you can relax. We're going to try simple analogies instead. Apologies in advance to any listeners out there working in the fields of biology or genetics. Let's imagine a man and a woman, each holding their own bag of multicolored sweets and candy. A real Halloween bag sort of mixture of everything. This podcast isn't sponsored yet, so we'll not name any brands. Just imagine everything, from chocolate bars to jelly beans. This man and woman decide to make a baby. Baby has to be made of half-mom and half-dad, so mom and dad each pour roughly the same amount of sweets and candy into baby's bag from their own bags. You in the back can stop sniggering. Now, right at the end, mom and dad have a look to see if baby is going to be a boy or a girl. If it's to be a girl, mom says, Here, take this pair of earrings I got from my own mother. If it's to be a boy, mom also says, Here, take this pair of earrings I got from my own mother. But at the last minute, dad says, Wait, wait, hang on to one of those earrings, but also take this gold pocket watch my father passed on to me. And so it goes, down the endless generations. Let's call the earrings maternal or mitochondrial DNA, the special DNA guaranteed to be passed on to baby by its mother, whether boy or girl. Let's call the gold pocket watch paternal or Y-DNA, the special DNA guaranteed to be passed on to baby by its father, but only if baby is male. And finally, Let's call the mixed bag of sweets we get from both mom and dad autosomal DNA. Human beings have 23 pairs of chromosomes for storing and passing on genetic data. Most of this autosomal DNA, our mixed bag of sweets, 
is spread across 22 of these chromosome pairs. If we're a girl, our earrings sit on just our one pair of sex chromosomes. These are the female XX chromosomes. But if we're a boy, our one earring and our gold pocket watch also sit on just our one pair of sex chromosomes. These are the male XY chromosomes. XDNA only tells us about our mother, her mother, and her mother before her. Y-DNA only tells us something about our father, his father, and his father before him. And while it's great that we always get to hang on to the treasured family earrings and gold pocket watch, even the non-scientifically minded among us would guess that most of the genes which actually determine who we are can be found in our inherited mixed bag of candy. If we want to understand who we really are, if we want to look at what we have inherited from all of our great-grandparents, then we must look at our autosomal DNA. Just think about it. All of us have 128 fifth great-grandparents, probably born around the 1700s. Every single one of them is a direct ancestor, and every single one of them contributed some sweets to the bag of candy we now carry. The Journal of Genetic Genealogy report, whether by accident or design, almost plays by the rules of eugenics, a now thoroughly discredited pseudoscience in which having even one drop of inheritance from one undesirable ethnic group decided a person's ethnicity. A man carrying an African haplogroup, their gold pocket watch, in 1870s Tennessee might well descend from a family found in 1630s Virginia. Let's call the patriarch of this family, the man with the EM2 African haplo, let's call him Joseph. And playing further along with the Journal of Genetic Genealogy's presumptions, let's say that Joseph did take um, an Irish indentured servant girl named Mary as his partner. Let's say Joseph and Mary have only six children, of which only four go on to have children of their own. And let's let this pattern continue at four generations per century. This, by the way, is being extremely conservative, as rural families were traditionally much larger during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Simple mathematical exponentiation, in this case, 4 to the power of 10, with 10 being the number of generations between 1630 and 1880, means that Joseph and Mary will have left well over a million descendants by the time so-called Melungeons were being dragged through the courts of Tennessee. Meaning, of course, that by 1875, at least half a million men had carried and passed on Joseph's EM2 haplo from Africa. Now to the point. 
Does anyone expect or believe that every single one of those half million men married only African-American women, especially as they were free soldiers, frontiersmen, and landholders living outside the confines of slavery? Of course not. During the colonial and frontier eras, free men took partners from a variety of backgrounds. The records do clearly show some very interesting and unusual marriage patterns, but we'll set that aside. It's a story for later. What matters most is that a man or woman standing in a courtroom in 1875 would have had 8,191 10th great-grandparents, or maybe somewhat less due to cousin marriage or pedigree collapse. A man living in 1875 might well be carrying an African Y-DNA haplogroup from one single ancestor, but that one single ancestor might represent just 0.01% of his total genetic makeup. One one-hundredth of one percent. Hardly enough to characterize a person as being of African descent. But wait, it gets worse. How big was the sample size for this definitive study? A couple dozen. That's it. And of this sample set of two dozen, a quarter of the DNA results remained unreported. So we're left with 17 or 18 reported Y-haplogroup results to pin a big chunk of American ethnic history upon. In addition, the choice of surnames used in this study was hugely important because this study used a discredited process known as front-loading. The people organizing the study seem to have already assumed they knew what a Melungeon was, based almost solely on who got called a Melungeon in local newspapers or court records between the 1830s and 1870s. But the word Melungeon was always an ethonym, that is to say, it was a term used by others to other. Melungeon was a socio-racial slur, not some valid indicator of any specific ethnicity. It was a way to denigrate what was seen at the time as the lowest point to which a person could sink, lower even than being considered black. The claimed, I repeat, the claimed transgressions against social acceptability were multifold. Melungeons married across the color line. Melungeons had children out of wedlock. Melungeons were lawless. Melungeons were violent. Melungeons were not proper God-fearing Christians. Melungeons drank too much. Melungeons were idlers. To be a Melungeon was to be the Appalachian equivalent of the Dalits of India, a caste untouchable and shunned. This social othering of Melungeons ran so deep 
that when the children of more white Appalachians misbehaved, they were brought back in line with ominous threats. Behave, or the Melungeons will come and get you. But again, I repeat, none of the various families called Melungeons ever used this term to describe themselves. They referred to themselves as Portuguese, Spanish, Black Dutch, sometimes Indian, with a few families readily admitting to some African ancestry. The lines between what people call themselves, what other people call them, and so-called truly objective labels are incredibly difficult to separate from one another. A better investigation would have perhaps taken a person who was called a Melungeon and then wherever possible looked for DNA samples from all of the surnames associated with that person's ancestry. At the very least, any serious investigation would have created a DNA study based around the surnames of families intermarried with each so-called Melungeon family especially when those interconnected families were Portuguese, Indian, or Black Dutch by repute. Funnily, the Journal of Genetic Genealogy sample set did actually include certain people historically called Portuguese into their sample group, but seemingly only those suspected of African patrilineage. Why else would the report exclude families also called Portuguese or Melungeon, such as the Nickens, Richardson, Hall, Chavis, Sexton, Ivy, or Sweet families? Of the unreported haplogroup results from the Journal of Genetic Genealogy's own sample set, two surnames, Bolton and Perkins, have deep ancestry not at all aligning with the general inferences made by the Journal of Genetic Genealogy's study. The patriarch of the Perkins clan dragged into court seems in fact to have been a Driggers by blood. This comes from the Iberian surname Rodriguez. This Perkins has a Y-DNA haplogroup usually associated with men from places like Saudi Arabia, Yemen, the Horn of Africa, Somalia, North Africa, and Iberia. Listeners are invited to listen to our podcast episode, Charleston Reshuffle, for more information on these Driggers people. Other Perkins lineages of early colonial Virginia, such as Nicholas Perkins, also carried Y-DNA suggesting Middle Eastern ancestry. With this particular Nicholas Perkins, also responsible for transporting the first documented Romany gypsy woman into the Virginia colony. The Boltons are interconnected with the Sizemores and with various descendants of Absalom Hall, a man who passed on yet another Y-DNA type associated with the Arab, Jewish or Moorish Iberian world. These people were traditionally deeply intermarried with members of the Pamunkey, Rappahannock, and other peoples of Eastern Virginia. But social context, historical nuance, and simple biological facts 
were of course totally lost on the press agencies who ensured that the Journal of Genetic Genealogy's simplistic and smirking press release circled the world in 2012. With their pompous display of hubris, the authors of this so-called study managed to undercut and damage centuries of delicately balanced mountain wisdom and folklore, which had found a way to negotiate the treacherous waters of a deeply, deeply complex multi-ethnic history. To give press releases and interviews claiming that Melungeons are simply the offspring of African men and so-called white Northern European women was beyond disingenuous. Remember that this so-called study signally failed to offer any worthwhile data on mitochondrial or female DNA. And yet... Even after the careful cherry-picking of male test lines. Of this tiny sample set of surnames, 11 out of the 17 reported surnames belonged to the R1B haplogroup, male DNA which is mostly, but not always, associated with European ancestry. That's about two-thirds. One-third of surnames showed Y-DNA results belonging to the EM2 or A haplogroups, male DNA which is mostly, but not always, associated with African ancestry. Perhaps most important, the majority of surnames participating in this project were found to carry a variety of different haplogroup designations. Families bearing the classic core Melungeon surname Collins, for example, were found to be the bearers of at least four different Y-DNA types. Although most of these Collins men had people of colour in their ancestry, only some carried an African DNA signature. So the dark complexion of many Collins men was clearly the result of something more complicated than African men taking white European wives. It is a strange study indeed, which shows two-thirds of its sample set to be the bearers of non-African haplos, yet the takeaway from this report put out to the international media was, Melungeons come from African men. An accurate headline would have read, African-American men formed a substantial minority component of Melungeon deep patrilinear ancestry. Mm, not very soundbitey, fair enough. But proper scholarship rarely is. This podcaster is acutely aware of the powerful undercurrent of racism still alive in America today and is doubly aware that some listeners will quite understandably be sniffing for a rat here. Is this guy a closet racist trying to subtly erase African Americans from the multi-ethnic history of Appalachia? Absolutely not. The foregoing is not intended in any way to diminish the reality of African ancestry among Appalachian communities. African ancestry among the so-called 
white population there is widespread and very, very real. But this African component of Melungeon, or Old Mix American ancestry, is only one small part of an extremely complicated story. Let's flip the coin, because this argument cuts both ways in ethnic terms. Appalachians constantly claiming a Scots-Irish identity based on a minuscule portion of their deep ancestry is equally ridiculous, especially when many of these so-called Scots-Irish Appalachians carry more autosomal DNA from places like Cameroon or Nigeria than from Ulster. There are clear racialist reasons for so many Appalachians claiming Scots-Irish heritage. As the late great George Orwell put it so memorably in his dystopian novel 1984, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. To discover the real story of the Melungeons requires us to understand, insofar as possible, their complete genetic historical, but most of all, very most of all, their cultural inheritance. Using biracial or triracial as a shorthand for ethnicity only suits those who want to believe in race. People of every color have reached America from many places with Africa just one of many such places. The full picture is far, far more complicated and amazing than most people would ever imagine. The truth matters for all of us, whatever our ethnic background. You see, believing in the American race system is like declaring that all rainbows are really just primary shades of blue, red, green, and yellow. When we believe such a thing, we aren't just ignoring much of the beauty in the world. We are also ignoring how a rainbow spectrum has no clear boundaries, no clear color lines. We'll complete our investigation of the history of the Melungeons next week. Hope you'll join us then. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by your host, Brian Halpin. Before We Were White main theme, performed by Dave McLaughlin, Rodney Lancashire, Ray Cohn, and Steph West. Visit the Before We Were White YouTube channel for bonus content related to each episode. Episode notes, resources, show transcripts, and further reading lists are available to supporters on our members page at beforewewerewhite.com. Supporters are also added to our social media forum 
where they can field questions pertaining to podcast episodes and much more. Our work would simply not be possible without the ongoing help of our friends. Heartfelt thanks go out to the rock-steady crew of Leanne, Jane, Pamela, Tara, and Julie. If you would like to support us as well, please visit www.beforewewerewhite.com forward slash support. Every contribution helps, large or small. Thank you.